Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Shadow by E. Nesbitt. This is not an artistically rounded-off ghost story, and nothing is explained in it, and there seems to be no reason why any of it should have happened. But that is no reason why it should not be told. You must have noticed that all the real ghost stories you have ever come close to are like this in these respects. No explanation, no logical coherence. Here is the story. There were three of us and another, but she had fainted suddenly at the second extra of the Christmas dance and had been put to bed in the dressing room next to the room which we three shared. It had been one of those jolly, old-fashioned dances where nearly everybody stays the night, and the big country house is stretched to its utmost containing, guests harbouring on sofas, couches, settles, and even mattresses on floors. Some of the young men actually, I believe, slept on the great dining table. We had talked of our partners, as girls will, and then the stillness of the manor house, broken only by the whisper of the wind in the cedar branches and the scraping of their harsh fingers against our window panes, had pricked us to such luxurious confidence in our surroundings of bright chintz and candle flame and firelight that we had dared to talk of ghosts, in which we all said we did not believe one bit. We had told the story of the phantom coach, and the horribly strange bed, and the lady in the sack, and the house in Berkeley Square. We none of us believed in ghosts, but my heart at least seemed to leap to my throat and choke me there when a tap came to our door. A tap, faint, not to be mistaken. Who's there? said the youngest of us, craning a lean neck towards the door. It opened slowly, and I give you my word, the instant of suspense that followed is still reckoned among my life's least confident moments. Almost at once the door opened fully, and Miss Eastwich, my aunt's housekeeper, companion, and general standby, looked in on us. We all said, Come in! But she stood there. She was at all normal hours the most silent woman I have ever known. She stood and looked at us, and shivered a little, So did we, for in those days corridors were not warmed by hot water pipes, and the air from the door was keen. "'I saw your light,' she said at last, "'and I thought it was late for you to be up. After all this gaiety, I thought perhaps—' Her glance turned towards the door of the dressing-room. "'No,' I said, "'she's fast asleep.' I should have added a good night, but the youngest of us forestalled my speech. She didn't know Miss Eastwich as we others did didn't know how her persistent silence had built a wall round her, a wall that no one dared to break down with the commonplaces of talk or the littlenesses of mere human relationship. Miss Eastwich's silence had taught us to treat her as a machine, and as other than a machine we never dreamed of treating her. But the youngest of us had seen Miss Eastwich for the first time that day. She was young, crude, ill-balanced, subject to blind, calf-like impulses. She was also the heiress of a rich tallow chandler, but that has nothing to do with this part of the story. She jumped up from the hearthrug, her unsuitably rich silk lace-trimmed dressing gown falling back from her thin collarbones, and ran to the door and put an arm round Miss Eastwich's prim, lis-encircled neck. I gasped, I should as soon have dared to embrace Cleopatra's needle. 
Come in, said the youngest of us. Come in and get warm. There's lots of cocoa left. She drew Miss Eastwich in and shut the door. The vivid light of pleasure in the housekeeper's pale eyes went through my heart like a knife. It would have been so easy to put an arm around her neck if one had only thought she wanted an arm there. But it was not I who had thought that, and, indeed, my arm might not have brought the light evoked by the thin arm of the youngest of us. Now, the youngest went on eagerly, you shall have the very biggest, nicest chair, and the cocoa pots here on the hob as hot as hot, and we've all been telling ghost stories, only we don't believe in them a bit, and when you get warm, you ought to tell one too. Miss Eastwich, that model of decorum and decently done duties, tell a ghost story. You're sure I'm not in your way? Miss Eastwich said, stretching her hands to the blaze. I wondered whether housekeepers have fires in their rooms, even at Christmas time. Not a bit, I said it, and I hope I said it as warmly as I felt it. I, Miss Eastwich, I'd have asked you to come in other times, only I didn't think you'd care for girls' chatter. The third girl, who was really of no account, and that's why I have not said anything about her before, poured cocoa for our guest. I put my fleecy Madeira shawl round her shoulders. I couldn't think of anything else to do for her, and I found myself wishing desperately to do something. The smiles she gave us were quite pretty. People can smile prettily at forty or fifty or even later, though girls don't realise this. It occurred to me, and this was another knife thrust, that I'd never seen Miss Eastwich smile, a real smile, before. The pale smiles of dutiful acquiescence were not of the same blood as this dimpling, happy, transfiguring look. This is very pleasant, she said and it seemed to me that I had never before heard her real voice. It did not please me to think that at the cost of cocoa, a fire, and my arm round her neck, I might have heard this new voice any time these six years. We've been telling ghost stories, I said. The worst of it is we don't believe in ghosts. No one we know has ever seen one. It's always that somebody told somebody who told somebody you know, said the youngest of us. And you can't believe that, can you? What the soldier said is not evidence, said Miss Eastwich. Will it be believed that the little Dickens quotation pierced one more keenly than the new smile or the new voice? And all the ghost stories are so beautifully rounded off, a murder committed on the spot, or a hidden treasure, or a warning. I think that makes them harder to believe. The most horrid ghost story I ever heard was one that was quite silly. Tell it. I can't. It doesn't sound anything to tell. Miss Eastwich ought to tell one. Oh, do, said the youngest of us, and her salt cellars loomed dark as she stretched her neck eagerly and laid an entreating arm on our guest's knee. The only thing that I ever knew of was, was hearsay, she said slowly, till just the end. I knew she would tell her story, and I knew she had never before told it, and I knew she was only telling it now because she was proud and this seemed the only way to pay for the fire and the cocoa and the laying of that arm around her neck. Don't tell it, I said suddenly. I know you'd rather not. I dare say it would bore you, she said meekly, and the youngest of us, who, after all, did not understand everything, glared resentfully at me. We should just love it, she said. Do tell us. Never mind if it isn't a real proper fixed-up story. I'm certain anything you think ghostly would be quite too beautifully horrid for anything. Miss Eastwich finished her cocoa and reached up to set the cup on the mantelpiece. 
It can't do any harm, she said, half to herself. They don't believe in ghosts, and it wasn't exactly a ghost either, and they're all over twenty, they're not babies. There was a breathing time of hush and expectancy. The fire crackled, and the gas suddenly glared higher because the billiard lights had been put out. We heard the steps and voices of the men going along the corridors. It's really hardly worth telling, Miss Eastwich said doubtfully, shading her faded face from the fire with her thin hand. We all said, go on, oh, go on, do. Well, she said, twenty years ago, more than that, I had two friends, and I loved them more than anything in the world, and they married each other. She paused, and I knew just in what way she had loved each of them. The youngest of us said, how awfully nice for you, do go on. She patted the youngest's shoulder, and I was glad that I had understood, and that the youngest of all hadn't. She went on. Well, after they were married, I didn't see much of them for a year or two, and then he wrote and asked me to come and stay because his wife was ill, and I should cheer her up, and cheer him up as well, for it was a gloomy house, and he himself was growing gloomy too. I knew as she spoke that she had every line of that letter by heart. Well, I went. The address was in Lee, near London. In those days there were streets and streets of new villa houses growing up round old brick mansions standing in their own grounds, with red walls round, you know, and a sort of flavour of coaching days, and post-chairs and Blackheath highwaymen about them. He had said the house was gloomy, and it was called The Furs and I imagined my cab going through a dark, winding shrubbery and drawing up in front of one of these sedate old square houses. Instead, we drew up in front of a large, smart villa with iron railings, gay encaustic tiles leading from the iron gate to the stained-glass panelled door, and for shrubbery, only a few stunted cypresses and acubas in the tiny front garden. But inside, it was all warm and welcoming. He met me at the door. She was gazing to the fire, and I knew that she had forgotten us. But the youngest girl of all still thought it was to us she was telling her story. He met me at the door, she said again, and thanked me for coming, and asked me to forgive the past. What past? said that high priestess of the inapropos, the youngest of all. Oh, I suppose he meant because uh, they hadn't invited me before, or, or something, said Miss Eastwich worriedly. But it's a very dull story, I find, after all, and do go on, I said. Then I kicked the youngest of us, and got up to rearrange Miss Eastwich's shawl, and said in blatant dumb show over the shawl's shoulder, Shut up, you little idiot! After another silence, the housekeeper's new voice went on. They were very glad to see me, and I was very glad to be there. You girls now have such troops of friends, but these two were all I had. All I had ever had. Mabel wasn't exactly ill, only weak and excitable. I thought he seemed more ill than she did. She went to bed early, and before she went, she asked me to keep him company through his last pipe. So we went into the dining room and sat in the two armchairs with green leather, I remember. There were bronze groups of horses and the black marble clock on the mantelpiece, all wedding presents. He poured out some whiskey for himself but he hardly touched it. He sat looking into the fire. At last, I said, What's wrong? Mabel looks as well as you could expect. He said, Yes, but I don't know from one day to another that she won't begin to notice something wrong. That's why I wanted you to come. 
You were always so sensible and strong-minded, and Mabel's like a little bird on a flower. I said, yes, of course, and waited for him to go on. I, I thought he must be in debt or in trouble of some sort, so I just waited. Presently he said, Margaret, this is a very peculiar house. He always called me Margaret, you see, we've been such old friends. I told him I thought the house was very pretty and fresh and homelike, only a little too new, but that fault would mend with time. He said, it is new. That's just it. We're the first people who've ever lived in it. If it were an old house, Margaret, I should think it was haunted. I asked if he had seen anything. No, he said. Not yet. Heard then, said I. No, not heard either, he said. But there's a sort of feeling. I can't describe it. I've seen nothing, and I've heard nothing, but I've been so near to seeing and hearing. Just near, that's all. A and something follows me about. Only when I turn round there's never anything, only my shadow, and I always feel that I shall see the thing next minute. But I never do. Not quite. It's always just not visible. I thought he'd been working rather hard and tried to cheer him up by making light of all of this. It was just nerves, I said. Then he said he had thought I could help him, and did I think anyone he had wronged could have laid a curse on him? And did I believe in curses? I said I didn't. And the only person anyone could have said he had wronged forgave him freely. I knew, if there was anything to forgive. So I told him this too. It was I, not the youngest of us, who knew the name of that person, wronged and forgiving. So then I said he ought to take Mabel away from the house and have a complete change, but he said no, Mabel had got everything in order, and he could never manage to get her away just now without explaining everything. And above all, he said, she mustn't guess there's anything wrong. I dare say I shan't feel quite such a lunatic now you're here. So he said good night. Is that all the story? said the third girl, striving to convey that even as it stood, it was a good story. That's only the beginning said Miss Eastwich. Whenever I was alone with him, he used to tell me the same thing over and over again. And at first, when I began to notice things, I tried to think that it was his talk that had upset my nerves. The odd thing was that it wasn't only at night, but in broad daylight, and particularly on the stairs and passages. On the staircase, the feeling used to be so awful that I have had to bite my lips till they bled to keep myself from running upstairs at full speed. Only I knew if I did I should go mad at the top. There was always something behind me, exactly as he had said, something that one could just not see, and a sound that one could just not hear. There was a long corridor at the top of the house. I've sometimes almost seen something. You know how one sees things without looking, but if I turned round, it seemed as if the thing dropped and melted into my shadow. There was a little window at the end of the corridor. Downstairs there was another corridor, something like it, with a cupboard at one end and the kitchen at the other. One night I went down into the kitchen to heat some milk for Mabel. The servants had gone to bed. As I stood by the fire waiting for the milk to boil, I glanced through the open door and along the passage. I never could keep my eyes on what I was doing in that house. The cupboard door was partly open. They used to keep empty boxes and things in it. And as I looked, I knew that now it was not going to be almost any more. Yet I said, M Mabel? Not the 
because I thought it could be Mabel, who was crouching down there, half in and half out of the cupboard. The thing was grey at first, and then it was black, and when I whispered, Mabel! It seemed to sink down till it lay like a pool of ink on the floor, and then its edges drew in, and it seemed to flow, like ink when you tilt up the paper you've spilt it on, and it flowed into the cupboard till it was all gathered into the shadow there. I saw it go quite plainly. The gas was full on in the kitchen. I screamed aloud, but even then I'm thankful to say I had enough sense to upset the boiling milk so that when he came downstairs three steps at a time, I had the excuse for my scream of a scalded hand. The explanation satisfied Mabel, but next night he said, Why didn't you tell me? It was that cupboard. All the horror of the house comes out of that. Tell me, have you seen anything yet? Or is it only the nearly seeing and nearly hearing still? I said, You must tell me first what you've seen. He told me, and his eyes wandered as he spoke to the shadows by the curtains, and I turned up all three gaslights and lit the candles on the mantelpiece. Then we looked at each other and said we were both mad, and thank God that Mabel at least was sane, for what he had seen was what I had seen. After that I hated to be alone with a shadow, because at any moment I might see something that would crouch and sink and lie like a black pool and then slowly draw itself into the shadow that was nearest. Often that shadow was my own. The thing came first at night, but afterwards there was no hour safe from it. I saw it at dawn and at noon, in the dusk and in the firelight, and always it crouched and sank, and was a pool that flowed into some shadow and became part of it, and always I saw it with a straining of the eyes, a pricking, and aching. It seemed as though I could only just see it, as if my sight to see it had to be strained to the utmost. And still the sound was in the house, the sound that I could just not hear. At last, one morning early, I did hear it. It was close behind me, and it was only a sigh. It was worse than the thing that crept into the shadows. I don't know how I bore it, I couldn't have borne it if I hadn't been so fond of them both, but I knew in my heart that if he had no one to whom he could speak openly, he would go mad, or tell Mabel. His was not a very strong character, very sweet and kind and gentle, but not strong. He was always easily led, so I stayed on and bore up, and we were very cheerful and made little jokes and tried to be amusing when Mabel was with us. But when we were alone... We did not try to be amusing, and sometimes a day or two would go by without us seeing or hearing anything, and we should perhaps have fancied that we'd fancied what we had seen and heard, only there was always the feeling of there being something about the house that one could just not hear and not see. Sometimes we used to try not to talk about it, but generally we talked of nothing else at all, and the weeks went by, and Mabel's baby was born. The nurse and the doctor said that both mother and child were doing well. He and I sat late in the dining room that night. We had neither of us seen or heard anything for three days. Our anxiety about Mabel was lessened. We talked of the future. It seemed then so much brighter than the past. 
We arranged that the moment she was fit to be moved, he should take her away to the sea, and I should superintend the moving of their furniture into the new house he had already chosen. He was gayer than I had seen him since his marriage, almost like his old self. When I said good night to him, he said a lot of things about my having been a comfort to them both. I hadn't done anything much, of course, but I'm still glad he said them. Then I went upstairs, almost for the first time without that feeling of something following me. I listened at Mabel's door. Everything was quiet. I went on towards my own room, and in an instant I felt that there was something behind me. I turned. It was crouching there. It sank, and the black fluidness of it seemed to be sucked under the door of Mabel's room. I went back. I opened the door a listening inch. All was still, and then I heard a sigh close behind me. I opened the door and went in. The nurse and the baby were asleep. Mabel was asleep too. She looked so pretty, like a tired child. The baby was cuddled up into one of her arms with its tiny head against her side. I prayed then that Mabel might never know the terrors that he and I had known, that those little ears might never hear any but pretty sounds, those clear eyes never see any but pretty sights. I didn't dare to pray for a long time after that, because my prayer was answered. She never saw, never heard anything more in this world, and now I could do nothing more for him, or for her. When they had put her in her coffin... I lighted wax candles round her and laid the horrible white flowers that people will send near her, and then I saw he had followed me. I took his hand to lead him away. At the door we both turned. It seemed to us that we heard a sigh. He would have sprung to her side in I don't know what mad, glad hope, but at that instant we both saw it, between us and the coffin, first grey, then black. It crouched an instant, then sank and liquefied, and was gathered together and drawn till it ran into the nearest shadow, and the nearest shadow was the shadow of Mabel's coffin. I left the next day. His mother came. She had never liked me. Miss Eastwich paused. I think she had quite forgotten us. Didn't you see him again? asked the youngest of us all. Only once Miss Eastwich answered and something black crouched then between him and me, but it was only his second wife, crying, beside his coffin. It's not a cheerful story, is it? And it doesn't lead anywhere. I've never told anyone else. I think it was seeing his daughter that brought it all back. She looked towards the dressing-room door. Mabel's baby? Yes, and exactly like Mabel, only with his eyes. The youngest of all had Miss Eastwich's hands and was petting them. Suddenly the woman wrenched her hands away and stood at her gaunt height, her hands clenched, eyes straining. She was looking at something that we could not see, and I knew what the man in the Bible meant when he said, the hair of my flesh stood up. What she saw seemed not quite to reach the height of the dressing-room door handle. Her eyes followed it down, down, widening and widening. Mine followed them. All nerves of them seemed strained to the uttermost, and I almost saw, or did I quite see? I can't be certain. But we all heard the long-drawn, quivering sigh, and to each of us it seemed to be breathed just behind us. It was I who caught up the candle. 
It dripped all over my trembling hand and was dragged by Miss Eastwich to the girl who had fainted during the second extra. But it was the youngest of all whose lean arms were round the housekeeper when we turned away, and that have been round her many a time since, in the new home where she keeps house for the youngest of us. The doctor who came in the morning said Mabel's daughter had died of heart disease, which she had inherited from her mother. It was that that had made her faint during the second extra, but I have sometimes wondered whether she may not have inherited something from her father. I have never been able to forget the look on her dead face. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? So that was The Shadow by Edith Nesbitt, also uh, published as Portent of the Shadow in 1905, same book. And um, you can get a copy of the actual facsimile of the 1905 with an illustration by, I'll tell you, it was illustrated by A. Michael. But it's quite hard to read. So in what I found was my old uh, friend, I don't think he's a friend of mine, actually, because we don't know each other, but M. Grant Kellermeyer. Kellermeyer, I'm guessing, who um, has oldstyletales.com and he he publishes, he's an illustrator and he does new editions of classic stories and he gives critical appraisals of them. So basically he posted this in June 2019 and he republished the story so it's much easier to read with one of his own illustrations. So I'll have a look at, have a look at his stuff, I think it's definitely right. And his footnotes. Now, I don't completely agree with all of his footnotes, so I'm I'm going to maybe use those. Um, I maybe refer to those at the end. But first of all, I'm going to say something uh, of my own. So Edith Nesbit getting her. We've read stories of hers before, particularly one, in fact, man-sized in marble. So she was born in uh, 1858 in Surrey, in Kennington, South London. Probably, I don't know how rural it would be then. It's fairly into the city, so. And then she died aged only 65 in New Romney in Kent. So her father was an agricultural chemist, John Collis Nesbitt, who died before she was four years old. And she had a sister who was ill. And that meant the family travelled for some years. And if you could afford to do this, families would. It was a great thing to travel. You see loads of people and authors and their families from this period moving around in search of better air. I don't know if it is related to the theory of the miasma because... They actually believed that it was the bad air that caused a lot of illnesses. And of course, in the Industrial Revolution, in certain places, there would be an awful lot of bad air. But anyway, they travelled, according to the wiki, they travelled, they lived variously in Brighton, Buckinghamshire, France, Dieppe, Rouen, Paris, Tours, Poitiers, Angoulême, Bordeaux, Arachon, Pau, Bagnères de Bigorre and Dinan, Brittany, Spain and Germany. It doesn't say where in Spain and Germany. Um... She, the, the, the sister, uh, got engaged in 1871 to the poet Philip Bourke Marston, but died later that year of tuberculosis. My um, great-aunt Madge died of tuberculosis, after whom she was Margaret, known as Madge, after whom my mother was um, named. So there we are. I don't know why I said that. So, of course, Edith Nesbitt is a massively famous and prolific writer, particularly for children, the story, the treasure seekers, the railway children, that bit in the film, not the new one, but the old one in the 70s with um, the young Jenny Agatha in, who um, 
I could tell you some stories about Jenny Agatha. When I was a teenager, of course, she did that uh, moving walkabout and she famously appeared naked when I was about 15 or, 15 or so. And uh, all, everybody at school wanted to watch it. Um, so we all went home to watch it. Anyway, but that is completely by the by. Get back to Edith Nesbitt, never mind about Jenny Agatha, who's very good. Um, but isn't she great? That line, the story, oh, daddy, oh, my daddy, still breaks your heart, doesn't it? Um, they'll never get, never get away from that. She wrote The Five Children in It, and that was one of my absolutely favourite um, novels when I was young. And it says um, she has been cited as a creator of modern children's fantasy. Her innovation has placed realistic contemporary children in real-world settings with magical objects, and so they say she's influenced J.K. Rowling, C.S. Lewis, who uh, in his Narnia series particularly, um, he mentions the Bastable children in The Magician's Nephew, the Bastables were created as a family by Nesbitt in the story of the Treasure Seekers. So C.S. Lewis mentions the Bastables. Michael Moorcock, uh, another of my great 1970s heroes, wrote a series of steampunk novels around the Oswald Bastable of the Treasure Seekers. So, and the Samiad trilogy, four children in it. Did I say five children in it? There maybe was another child. I'm probably going to say, I know some academics listen to this, and I think they probably agree with me that... Um, you know, how you make your career, it seems to me, as an academic, is somebody says something and everybody agrees with that and that's great. And then somebody else comes along a few years later and goes, oh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to disagree with that and I'm going to, I'm going to rip it apart. So I see, and this isn't an academic, it's a lady called Jessica Winter in New Yorker wrote that Nesbitt's books are blighted by racist and colonialist language and anti-Semitic tropes, you know, and... Uh, and and then and you know and she didn't mention sexism, but of course she has. I mean, Nesbit was a woman. Nesbit was a woman, you know. And she has the railway children. They say girls are just as clever as boys, but don't you forget it, okay? But I mean, you know, I keep coming back to this. If you if you pick up a piece of Japanese, say there are Japanese stories from the time of the first um, contact with Europeans, they say some very unpleasant things about the Europeans, you know, um, and. I, I don't know. I guess it was the way of these things. And some early Arabic from the Middle Ages, when the Arabs were very uh, highly civilized and the Europeans were definitely inferior in terms of uh, progress and civilization, whichever you want to talk about progress, whatever that means. You know, they, they aren't necessarily very um, pleasant in their descriptions of Europeans. And it's just a thing of its time. So it would be extraordinary if she was uh, a 2022 liberal academic very up in, on intersectional philosophy you know she's just not going to be that so i want to say just get back in your box sorry you know it's not that these things everything is bound by its time anyway don't let my rant take away from the greatness of this story um i'll say i'll probably come back to grant kellermeyer's notes it, it is a really good story i think it's a tremendous story um, it's a Christmas story, and as as we note, the the tradition of ghost stories in Britain was to tell them at Christmas, not necessarily at Halloween. The the other thing is Halloween is people say it's an American invention. That absolutely isn't true. I remember as a little boy, we had our own Halloween. Un, you know, we we come as a very north of England, the Scottish borders. It never died out here, um, and we had our own traditions. So it isn't true to say it's a modern invention. I think down in the south of England. They did die out there amongst the urban population. I don't know about people in Dorset and Suffolk 
and places like that, that they may well have continued their own traditions. But to the city dwellers, it was as if it was forgotten. And then it came back as a great revelation. And I don't, you know, Halloween has a lot of um, American influence on it. And that's fine. You know, that's, that, you know, again, things move around, get over it, you know, culture shifts, ideas move around. And, and let's face it, it's great that they do, isn't it? Let's be open to all these things. Oh, I'm on a rant this morning, aren't I? It is morning. I don't know what time you're listening to this. So what is great about it? She, she, he, she references um, some it, the ghost stories that she's read, and you'll recognise the Phantom Coach, possibly. We haven't, uh, and that's by Amelia B. Edwards she references. She isn't by name. Other ones, Wilkie Collins, The Terribly Strange Bed, Sir Walter Scott, The Tapestry Chamber, um, Rhoda Broughton, Nothing But The Truth. Now, <clears throat> what I think is really good about this story I like the structure. First of all, the first person we mention is the one who faints during the extras. And that, we don't realise that, but that's a clever foreshadowing because she faints because she's got a bad heart like her mother. We don't know that at that point. It only becomes relevant at the end. And that is, that's how it works, you know. If, it, if she'd laid that on too much, it would have spoiled it. I'm not sure that that is our main focus in this story. The, the, the baby, Mabel's baby, who, who turns out to be there. What I think is good about it is the characterization. First of all, we have the light characterization of the narrator. Not much of that, but she's a, a sensible young woman who is a bit worldly wise. And we have the youngest of them all. I love the fact that there's another one she said, I've not mentioned the third, which I haven't mentioned because she's of no account. That makes me laugh. Cruel, though. Um, I wouldn't like to be that person. But then the youngest of us all is fun. She's just a, a naive young girl, isn't she? But she's got a good heart. And it's her good heart and her naivete which allows the Miss Eastwich... You try saying Miss Eastwich's shawl a lot. Miss Eastwich, it's hard to say. I had to stop a lot of times and redo those because I stumbled over them. It's like a tongue twister. But Edith Nesbitt, as I call her, Edith, my friend, she uh, probably never read the stories out. So they were meant to be read, so she didn't fully perceive the difficulty of saying Miss Eastwich's, you know. Um, but there we are. So the youngest of us all, the youngest of them all, she's naive, but her naivete, I, love, I like saying that, is a key to this woman's heart, this older woman who's of a lower social class. And that's, I guess, the point here, that she's been an outsider all her life. She's not, she's not working class, um, but she's also not of the owner's class, you know, so she isn't, she doesn't partake of the balls and the things like that. And also her age sets her apart. The rest of them are young women in the in the first flower of their social life, and she is not that. She is, but we get a hint that she has been that. And the th and I love the characterization. This is a sad woman, and there's so much not said, which we get. And of course, I suppose it would have been more subtle if the narrator hadn't reminded us that she got it, and the youngest of all didn't get it. If they just left it at that, and we might have got it, but. I'm not against that. I think it points up that there is this this uh, unspoken subtext, which is shown. It's not told, it's shown. Remember? Show, don't tell. So, so much about her, the rhythm of her speech, the descriptions of her, her looking away, and then we get what the story's really about. Um, also, that the language is very contemporary, in that it's, an, it's, it's a naturalistic language whereby sentences are interrupted by new thoughts, you know. He thinks this and you go off on a tangent, you come back, and that's how people speak. 
not not like you know the older Victorian stuff where they spoke as if they were declaiming from a written speech. This is more naturalistic, of course, without being naturalistic, because if you listen now to me, you'll hear breaths, you'll hear ums, you'll hear pauses, you'll hear repetitions, you'll hear false starts of sentences. I should try and... This is my joke, you see, because normally I would edit those out, but I'm going to leave them in, save myself some work, and also point out that this is how people really speak, at least that's how I really speak. But anyway, I just loved the way it was done, the naturalistic speech the hinting, the characterization, the things left out. So what is it about? Mm. So it seems to me clearly that what this is about is the shadow is the ghost of her love for him. In a sense, her, her only love, the love of her life was stolen, if you want, I'm not totally tied to that word, but let's use it, um, by Mabel. And Mabel's a bit of a flippity-jippet, isn't she? She's like a bird on a flower. She's something out, you know, she's a fluttering piece of tinsel. Whereas our woman has depth, I think. You know, she has, I think sorrow makes depth as well, so she perhaps didn't have depth when she was younger, but the reflection on her loss has deepened her character, perhaps we might say. So the, the shadow that they, those two both see is the shadow of their lost love. But it's also murderous. And I think at one level, he is regretful that he's married Mabel in some ways, although she's very pretty, etc., etc. But she's, she's, she's like a weak, she's weak, isn't she, really? No, no offence to the poor lady. I mean, she's dead. Also, she's fictional, so she's not going to get offended. Uh, but, you know, I don't mean anything, but, but some people are weak. And uh, both physically and mentally. And, and I think that's the issue. And she doesn't appear that she has a depth of character like our Miss Eastwich does. So, and she's Miss, of course, which emphasises the whole thing, the whole, the whole thing. So it is the ghost of their love for each other which was killed and which is wanting revenge and is murderous and it achieves its revenge. And so almost unconsciously, you know, again, so I don't know if Edith Nesbitt was up on psychoanalytical theory, but I mean, the, the psychoanalytical theorist would say, it doesn't matter if you're up on it, it's real. It's like you might not be up on toes, but they're still there. Or you might not be up on rain, but it still falls, whether you know anything about it or not. And they would say that the, the unconscious works whether you believe it or not. So, uh, and, and Nesbitt's unconscious, and perhaps she is, I don't know enough of her story to say, is this actually a reflection of her own preoccupations? Maybe there was somebody that she loved and lost, I don't know. Somebody who knows more about it might say, there may be, probably there's be a biography of hers which I haven't read, uh, which would tell that. But it seems to me that it's murderous, you know. Both of them want Mabel dead. But of course... The, the, a double failure is, so say our Miss Eastwich wants Mabel dead in the, in the unspoken hope that he may, he may turn to her. He might want Mabel dead because he wants another chance with somebody else, not Miss Eastwich. And Miss Eastwich to him is merely a convenience, you know. She's somebody that's useful uh, for his comfort and for, to comfort his wife. But he, he doesn't actually uh, entertain any um, fancies towards her. 
And that, again, I think this is a subtlety, isn't it? It would have been easy to write as if they were, you know, they both were desperately in love with each other, regretted the mistake th- uh, that he had made in choosing Mabel and wanted to make it all right. But I think the subtlety is that that doesn't seem to be the case because Mabel dies and he doesn't choose Miss Eastwich. Miss Eastwich is once again othered and sent to the outer darkness. Um, there is a little bit of hope in that she ends up the, the youngest who in her naivety and kindness has offers a new hope to Miss Eastwich for the rest of her life that she can have some happiness and some mutually respecting and affectionate relationships which she hasn't got anywhere else. She certainly didn't get it in her role, and Nesbitt lets us know this, in her role as housekeeper in that house. She was an outsider. They they kind of didn't... They saw her shell and thought that, that this was what she wanted, not to be um, invited into the warmth. And in, in her open... Um, I, I can't come with naivety, but I'm going to... Uh, immaturity, whatever, whatever, whatever. And the youngest allows her in and breaks it and, and allows the, the older woman's heart to flower a little bit again. So she does, it isn't a totally desperately awful bad story. Um, is there any more to say? Yeah, and the fact that he marries his second wife and the only time, just like the salt in the wound, the only time she ever saw him again, he was a shadow um, no, there was a shadow between them. Again, a shadow. It's the same kind of shadow, isn't it? Of the second wife as the shadow between them before had been Mabel. And the fact is, we're told that the house is new that he moves into. It isn't a ghost from the house. It's a ghost that he has brought with him. And yeah, there we are. So, oh, goodness me, I thought that was a great, great story. I hope you agree. Nice. It is a Christmas story in that the, the ball is set at Christmas. But that might just be to tag it on so you can tell it at Christmas. It's not, it's not a Christmas story otherwise. No, there's no Santa Claus in it. Um, I think we must do a, a ghost story with Santa Claus in him because we've been doing a lot of Christmas stories because it's Christmas 2022, in case you're listening to this when I'm long dead. That's a thought, isn't it? Um, so, okay. So let me just... Um, I'm going to... I mean, you should read Grant um, Kellermeyer's notes... He's a guy who knows his stuff. He says at one point that Nesbitt uses her stories not as entertainment, but as to advance her existential philosophy, her view. Uh, I don't get that, being honest. I don't get it. But we all understand things. And you will understand this story in a different way, depending on who you are. Um, Carl Jung said that um, when we meet somebody, he's talking about, a patient, it is like a chemical, if it works, it's a chemical reaction and both people are changed. We each bring something of our own. So you are, so in this way, it's like a, I was going to say three-way. Sheila was watching Bridget Jones um, last night when I was writing an article about duloxetine. And um, they, they mentioned that phrase there, which I didn't, I wasn't actually sure of the context there. But so uh, I'm now blushing. But it is a, it is a, a, a tripartite exchange in that um, what we have is we have Edith Nesbitt, then me and you. So the three of us together come up every time because we are three different people at each time with a different version of the story. 
And I think that's just wonderful. Okay, that's all I've got to say. I'm, I'm rushing to finish loads of work, including this. I hope you enjoyed it. I put various um, stories out over Christmas and New Year. So I don't know how you consume the podcast, whether you listen to it on um, Spotify and Apple are the two biggest, but there are other people as well, Stitcher and others, uh, Podbean possibly, or YouTube, or you may get it through Substack uh, or through Patreon. There we are. So however you do, I wish you all the best. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you're all happy. We're supposed to finish with a call to action. Remember, this is apparently good practice. Um, so the call to action this week would be for you to have a really nice time. How about that? That's my call to action for you. Okay. Peace and love. I will be back. Don't worry about that. I forgot to say, I know you like little um, domestic things. So basically, it's been very cold. We've had about 10 degrees of cold for us. Unusual in December, below zero. Uh, freezing, that is to say, below zero centigrade. Um, up down to about minus seven, minus eight. It's actually thawed today. It still feels cold. Bone, it's wet cold now. Anyway, I felt sorry for the birds. So I got some bird food and got put some bird feeders up in our backyard. Now, I know in the, in, in the USA, and possibly in Canada, um, a yard is a garden. This is not a yard in, to me, is a, is a paved or, or stone-based area. So a backyard would tend not to have grass there. So ours doesn't, and it's only small. Uh, and the birds wouldn't come in. And I'm like, why are they not coming in? Well, you know where there's cats live us. There's two, there's a, um, a Siamese lives next door on, on the right-hand side. He doesn't come out, or she, very pretty, sits in a window. There are two other cats, about three down, they come out sometimes. And then my faves are Tiger Stripe and Lucifer Sam, who's a black cat, who are stalking around. So I wondered if the birds wouldn't come because the cats could leap on them from the walls. So they weren't eating any of this food and it was freezing cold. So I got some suet balls and some um, seed and then some sunflower seeds. And I, there's a, a tree, there's some open ground between us and the river. And there's scrubby ground and there's trees. So I went and put them in the tree. Uh, partly because Sheila can look out her window. I can't see them from here. But Sheila can look out her window when she's doing her various treatments for people. Or not, probably, because she should be concentrating on the, on the, the client. Uh, and look out and see the birdie wees in the trees. So, uh, but they really ate loads of it uh, really quickly. So I'm pleased. I hope, hope they're all happy. I hope you're all happy. See, I'm full of the... Joys of the season. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies. Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patreons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy 
of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you, which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it, so you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barcud, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.